Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hershey. On today's episode, Sean and I talk to photographer Elena Rios about how the California landscape has shaped her art practice, the history and politics of women in the medium, and why it's time to stop celebrating the work of Ansel Adams. Well, welcome to the show, Elena. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here to um, talk to both of you. Yeah, I'm really excited to to have you here. I've been looking forward to this particular interview for a while. The members of our audience who don't know Elena and I are grad school compatriots and the best of friends. No one perhaps understands my views about grad school better than than Elena for having a firsthand knowledge and experience of them. It's true. One of Mason's first names out of his mouth was Elena. So you have been in our <laughs> minds for the last three, four months. So let's open where these conversations always do with a little bit of background about about you and about your sort of journey to becoming a photographer and, and educator. Um, because I know like you have a, a pretty interesting background in like undergrad and, and your sort of journey between mediums is pretty interesting. So, you know, I'll talk a little bit to that. Sure. Yeah. It starts even kind of further back than undergrad because I, um, you know, I kind of came from a broken home and, you know, the ideas about education, you know, in my family were, um, a little bit contested. Like my mom really wanted me to get an unconventional education because she didn't necessarily subscribe to some of the more traditional ideas about the educational system. Um, so she sent me to this, uh, very like kind of, um, strange, uh, high school where I interned two days a week with a, you know, in a, in a profession that I was, that I liked and was drawn to, uh, instead of going to school. And then I, I sort of filtered all the rest of my learning through that internship experience. And I decided right away that I wanted to work with a photographer. So, uh, my, uh, lifelong mentor, um, came out of that experience. Her name is Jill Brody and she is a photographer who is, um, still alive and well and lives in Rhode Island where I'm from. Um, and she encouraged me, uh, you know, to apply to college, even though I don't really remember anyone else really doing that along the way. Maybe there was some assumption about it, but I, uh, ended up applying and, and, and deciding to go to New York city to the new school. And this was back in 2001. Um, and within the first three weeks of, of being a freshman in college, September 11th happened. And, um, at the time I, I really, as much as I loved photography and had sort of uh, dedicated a lot of time to learning how to work in the darkroom as a high school student and even built a darkroom for my tiny, you know, uh, high school, I, I was interested in writing at that time. So I was, I was taking classes on um, like screenwriting and, and feminism. And I was like really kind of like in the thick of this kind of like um, self exploration around kind of what my own politics were going to be as this budding adult in New York. And so for September 11th to happen, um, it really it ended up sort of crystallizing this um, this realization that I wasn't quite ready. So I took a year and a half off of school and I, I course corrected and ended up going to a small liberal arts school far away from the city where I could focus a little bit more on myself and where there was more, uh, I would say a little bit more freedom for me to decide on whether or not I wanted to study the visual arts or stick with writing. And so liberal arts just made a lot of sense for me because I had a little bit more control over the direction of, of what I wanted to study. So 
that school is called Bennington College, and I was there um, for four years. So I graduated in 2007, and um, I focused on a combination of things. Photography certainly was my primary focus, and I also studied and 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 took all the printmaking classes available and um, felt very connected to that community there. I mean, a note about Bennington is that they have the largest uh, sort of like set of studios, this this huge building called VAPA that houses um, all sorts of different performance spaces. Um, They have this really beautiful like sprung dance floor and that's like the largest space, I think they say east of the Mississippi or something. So it was a really exciting place to be. Um, and there aren't a lot of people that that go to that school. So at the time, there were only like, I think, five or 600 students. So we had the run of the place. We could, I could stay up all night. There were no such thing as, you know, <laughs> locked doors for us. So, um, and we were encouraged to do so. So it really was this kind of idyllic uh, experience for me. And I really, um, I really enjoyed it much more than I, than I even thought I was possible at the time. Um, and then I graduated, as I said, 2007, um, took about a year off and, and, you know, I made a little list of things that I wanted because all my friends were moving to New York city and, you know, my, my father's family lived in New York and, and it just wanted to be fairly far away from this kind of like big dysfunctional family. Uh, I mean, I love them dearly, but I was excited to strike out and kind of do something different for a while and just experience a different part of our country. And, so, you know, I wanted to live near the ocean. I wanted, you know, arts and culture. And so I made a list and only a few cities really fit what I wanted and San Francisco kind of fit the bill. And so um, I headed out here in 2008, not realizing that the housing crisis was on the horizon, not realizing that, you know, like pursuing a career in the arts in a city that I had just moved to as, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> someone who had just graduated from from a tiny little school in Vermont um, may not really have like the brightest future at that time. I mean, timing is everything. And so what was going on at that time was that, um, you know, the, the craft cocktail, uh, you know, sort of revolution and this like really incredibly rich, um, kind of like culture around food and beverages started, uh, growing in San Francisco. And so I had always waited tables and I really love hospitality. I love the energy of it. It's a great way to meet people who love other people and have a sense of, you know, they're hardworking people. So I did that for about, you know, 10 years, all while still making photographs and, and, and keeping up with my art practice um, quite a bit. You know, I took a lot of classes to, to maintain that, but going to graduate school ended up becoming sort of an inevitability after 10 years of of being without a real arts community. I feel like that is a pretty common path. The amount of time often differs, but you graduate with a, you know, bachelor's degree in art, and then you spend a bunch of time trying to figure out what that practically looks like. And you either find, stumble into a career or you decide to go back to school. Um, But I feel like a lot of us tend to follow that same sort of path. Yeah, I it's interesting because I certainly felt at the time and I I can even still say I feel this way now that uh one thing that's not integrated into the curriculum in the arts is some real sense of of what how you can practically apply your skills to a job. And so I still have family asking me what I'm going to do when I grow up or you know jokingly but <laughs> but, but 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 no really what what are you, how exactly does this fit into some sort of 
uh, paid position somewhere. Like, and, and sometimes it's not a criticism even. It's more, it's really a curiosity for people. And I, I, I wish I had, um, the type of answer that could kind of like calm the nerves of a lot of my loving friends and family, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I think that we all spend our lives trying to figure out exactly is how we can find meaning in the ways that we make money and, and in the ways that we don't make money. So I'm, I'm sorting that out. Get back to me maybe in a year after I'm done completely <laughs> out of graduate school. <laughs> I, I think about this a lot and I wonder if it is, if there really is even any practical difference between art and anything else. I mean, we, the um, career path is definitely not any more clear, but based on how the economy has been over the last few years, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what you get a degree in. You don't have a guarantee of any sort of job, but the, there's this built in expectation that there's nothing that anybody can do with an art degree. And I feel like part of almost part of the art experience is fending off those family members and being like, well, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out or, I'm working on this thing. We're trying to explain to them that like, Hey, this doesn't look like being an engineer, you know, like it's a different kind of path. I think, uh, really just asking people to be patient, um, is an important part of the process. You know, we're all doing the best we can to figure it out and to figure out ways to, uh, you know, gain, gain perspective and skills and, um, you know, I come from a, a working class family. My, my father was a teacher for, you know, he became a teacher, in fact, in his mid thirties. So really just about the age that I'm at, he, um, you know, with five kids and, you know, a wife at home, he just decided that he was going to go back to school and, um, he became a PE teacher and, you know, he, he coached football for his entire career. And, um, and his mother was a teacher in New York city. So, um, and then, you know, of course my mom was a stay at home mom with five kids and, um, you know, worked odd jobs kind of after their divorce, but no one laid any groundwork for me. No one really had any type of suggestion or even any concept of what an art career would look like. And so in that way, I do feel a little bit like there's this, uh, assumption that, you know, if you're, doing anything that doesn't fit cleanly into some sort of like career path that people can understand or have heard about or whatever is like talked about in the media in some way, then you're going to be a teacher. And, and, <laughs> and my, my, uh, reaction to that is, well, I genuinely love teaching. I think of it as not that different from what it was to manage people in a restaurant or participate in this sort of like team environment of really getting a bunch of people around um, the central focus of like growing and learning. And so, uh, and having somebody who's just there to manage it and just there to make sure that everybody is, you know, kind of doing their part and that, you know, it's sort of this like well-oiled machine of, uh, of <laughs> and, and, and so maybe there's a little bit more of my, my dad's like football coach energy in me than I, than I will oh, ever team. quite admit. <laughs> you have no idea. My dad is the <laughs> ultimate coach, you know, and with five kids, you can only imagine he's like, you know, I was aiming for a football, a football team, but I got a basketball team. Five kids. <laughs> Haha, dad. <laughs> Great <Gross>. joke. <laughs> He's actually very funny. <laughs> Sean, do you, you know, because in the visual arts, it's definitely like, oh, you, if, if you, if you don't like somehow make it big because you have connections in New York, like you, a lot of us end up teaching. Um, and a lot of us, I feel like 
And and you touched on this a little bit, Elena. We lean toward the types that would teach anyway. Um, and it lines up with what we want to do. We're researchers and, and we, you know, want to have access to those materials. But Sean, as, as a classical musician, is there that parallel or is it more? Yeah, I think <laughs> there's a lot of you teach to pay the bills and there are the personalities out there who get the music education degrees and actually want to teach. Um, and perhaps that's why I never really continued with my, like I was not as steadfast with my musical teaching, my musical career. Cause I hate teaching. Um, not that I hate it, but I could, I can only stomach so much of it. So doing it for, to make a living with a bunch of whiny children would not be my preferred way to spend my time. So we're starting a podcast. <laughs> teaching is hard. That's mm-hmm. the thing they don't tell you. Teaching yeah. is one of the hardest things that you can do. Uh, and I and I say that because, you know, thankfully at San Jose State, you know, that that one of the draws of that program in particular for me as someone who really loves education and really loves, um, you know, despite, you know, <laughs> some questionable semesters where I was not the strongest student necessarily, or this glowing example of one, but, uh, you know, especially the older I get, the more I value it and the more excited I am to sort of like, and more confident I am about imparting the things that I've learned, um, you know, in other people, but, but that's it. And the more I see the need for people who want to teach to become teachers. And I think that's because of exactly what you were describing, Sean, which is this, this sort of um, uh, this polarity of people who are put in this position where teaching is something that they need to do to pay the bills, whether they like it or not. And so you, we all, you know, have, have met those teachers who have <laughs> um, better things to do with their time. <laughs> but also there are, there are always teachers who would be doing it regardless of, of, of whatever that. So inter- it's good that you know that about yourself, Sean, that you, and that's that's all yeah. we all anyone can ask is just <laughs> right. to kind of know where you stand on that spectrum. So how has this like all these experiences, your experiences and passions in writing, in teaching, in working in the service and hospitality industry, how does that all kind of coalesce into your art practice? Or I don't know if you can even define it as such, but maybe touch on what you think it has done for your art practice. You know, I started in graduate school thinking that somehow all of it needed to be wrapped up into this practice. Um, and it turns out that uh, all of it doesn't belong. It's sort of like decorating a room, right? Like you don't need to put every piece of furniture you own into that room to make it look good. It's like, so I find myself constantly sort of like paring things down, editing things, critiquing my ideas and my concepts and really trying to figure out how to strip away the things that are really potentially um, distracting from what it is that I'm really trying to say with my work. And I think my work has become stronger and more concise for that reason. Uh, And, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about so much um, is my interest in the outdoors and my interest in the landscape. And that's really been the driving force behind my work uh, that developed kind of like specifically in response to moving to California and specifically in response to seeing and experiencing in person these these uh, 
these wilderness spaces that I only saw or experienced through photographic sort of um, uh, images before I moved out to the West. Um, certainly I had visited California, but living here and being able to, ex- and, and, you know, really integrate um, those places into your you know, your kind of like annual either vacation or, or even maybe beyond that. So for me, I tried to figure out some way to kind of push them into the foreground of my life so that, um, I could take the flexibility offered from my schedule and, and, and sort of, um, allow that to make way for this practice that really allowed me to, to go out and make the images that I saw, other people making, but trying to just like figure out some new way of interacting with that landscape in a way that didn't feel canned or cliche um, and trying to not make a cliche photograph of the landscape is also very hard. (laughs) (laughs) The landscape is one uh, genre that, and this is something I'm exploring in my, in my thesis, you know, after three years of, of really, kind of self critiquing my impulse to, to make images of the landscape is um, a closer examination of that impulse and why it drives so many photographers, you know, all the way from amateurs, all the way up through the professional um, and fine art photography world, like this, this um, sort of lasting uh, this legacy of the landscape is uh, embedded into the fabric of our culture as Americans and specifically as people that live in the Western United States. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I, that, that said, like, you know, you kind of like take your lifestyle and hopefully it, it leaves space for the parts of you to kind of feed your art practice as much as possible. It's interesting to hear you lay that out because, you know, thinking about your work, when I first met you, like the things that you were showing at the beginning of grad school were almost exclusively landscapes, right? And they were your, your long exposure night photography. And then, you know, seeing the work that you had later seeing the work that you'd made in undergrad and a little bit in high school, right? It, a very different um, sort of flavor to it. You were making much more like personal portraits and images of interior spaces you had the series of your childhood home moving do you credit shifting into landscape photography with moving to california specifically absolutely yeah i do i'm not sure that the direction that i'm in now would be uh you know happening if i hadn't moved to california um in part because my focus was just totally different living in new England. I'm the oldest of of five kids and, you know, in beyond that, even I have an enormous extended family. And so living in the place where I grew up and, and new England is, is so different because, you know, especially growing up in, in Providence, Rhode Island, where I grew up, uh, you know, you can cross state lines within 15 minutes and then cross state lines again within 15 more minutes. And so there's all this, you know, there's, there's, it's, I I felt like my practice was much more like people focused and relationship focused and environmental portraits made a lot of sense in that way, especially when I began uh, really thinking about color photography and making that transition to like thinking a lot about the way that the language of light can impact these like narrative um, moments with the people that I knew so well. Uh, who were leading these very kind of bizarre lives <laughs> um, <laughs> and living in these places that that um, I couldn't explain without making a photograph of them. And so without that, you know, when moving 
into this this wide open kind of um, alien place to me, California, without any of my family here. I mean, I lived until my sister moved to California a few years ago, and she has since moved away. I lived in California without any kind of immediate or close family members here for about nine years. So that's a long time to have to try to reframe what I had kind of established as my um, my art practice as being like very relationship focused and family focused. So, um, so the landscape became this sort of like, I don't know, this, it, it became a fascination for me, I think in part because I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't understand how it would ever be possible to have a voice in this already like extremely diluted pool of voices making landscape photographs. Could you like kind of give a kind of, bird's eye view of what that kind of environment for that genre of photography is like for a neophyte? You mean landscape photography? Yeah, just kind of what that the the art industry or of landscape photography kind of looks like. Thank you, Sean. I forget sometimes that um, other people don't spend all day talking about this the stuff. Pictures. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> landscape photography is interesting. I mean, all of contemporary photography, I think, is... Um, is extremely obviously very diverse but in terms of like the the kind of historical underpinnings of where landscape comes from um especially with regard to photography and i think uh, mason did a great job of talking about this in the talk that the two of you had in the podcast i listened to last week but um really thinking about how photography is uh unique in its um historical relationship to the events of the 19th century specifically with regard to um the sort of imperial um push towards western expansion so um you know in the late 1830s photography is invented you get into like the 1850s and, and then the 60s you got you have the civil war um, and a lot of the civil war photographers um, that were out sort of making photographs of of the soldiers because remember at that time the kind of glass plate natives and and, and the technology of photography at that time um, wasn't capable of capturing any action right so at that time photography as a tool was um, not suited for action battle anything that re- that had movement in it so landscape was was kind of perfect right landscape ended up being this genre that um, allowed photography to sort of show off its capabilities and it absolutely did and it did it it did so better than um, really uh, almost any other medium could at that time and in part because it could also travel well or it could, you know because of its reproducibility you know it ended up um sort of spreading the news of 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 what these what these places looked like that most people would never be able to travel to um because not only film was slow people were slow they couldn't easily move across the country in, <laughs> in any in any way so um it was a real commitment for people to kind of sight unseen move to the western territory so so manifest destiny ended up being this like really powerful kind of political time where the government, the U.S. Geological um, Society, ended up paying a handful of photographers to go out and document the American West um, in the name of sort of like uh, uh, hoping to coax people to kind of um, settle in these lands. But also, you know, they were they were also 
advertising the railroad. They, there was there was a lot of propaganda being developed, um, and pho- photography was 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 the language that they had chosen to use. So that's sort of the historical. And a lot of those landscape um, photographers at that time weren't necessarily doing it in the name of art, although a lot of them were borrowing from these sort of traditional. Uh, techniques used by the landscape painters of like the Barbizon school in France, for example, Um, they have like a fantastic um, style that they developed in terms of um, having painters, you know, kind of like identify and represent the land in a a specific type of style. And um, so they would train painters and they would sell their paintings. And that's kind of like sort of part of the early development of, of, of tourism and the souvenir. Um, So so a lot of this um, ephemera of, of landscape photography, a lot of these um, documents ended up circ- in circulation. And so what we think of as potentially a, an inert landscape photograph that could uh, be seen, something that is on your, you know, for example, like the R- Richard Mizrak photograph that was, you know, on the iPad in 2010 or whatever it might be, whatever it might be that, uh, that are these landscapes that feel inviting, you know, um, they feel full of possibility and they feel free of politics, really, in a lot of ways, are produced in in some way um, uh, for exactly the opposite reason. Right. <laughs> so, They're essentially propaganda, really nice, yeah. flashy ads. Right. right. And so does that kind of history of landscape photography kind of bleed into what landscape photography is even after it moves beyond that political need? Landscape photography, of course, has changed since the kind right. of deep history I just referred to. So, right. so you know, kind of quick, quick, sketchy overview. You know, you kind of move into the the modernist period where you have um, at the F sixty four group, which are kind of the West Coast strongholds of landscape photographers who really believed in the straight photograph. So you've got Ansel Adams, Ed Weston, you know, um, and a few other names that people are probably familiar with. Those are the two big ones. And then, um, you know, there was you know, they're working and we're talking like 1930s, 1940s. And really, of course, Ansel Adams worked up till his death in like 1984 or something. And then, so you've got this aestheticization um, of the landscape where they wanted the absolute kind of like the, the, the most depth of field that they could possibly get. They wanted, they wanted the aesthetics to sort of become more important than anything else about the photographs. And, um, you know, quickly kind of after that, you know, postmodernism happens again, like the sixties and, and then the seventies and there's, what do you have? You have suburban development, you have sprawl, you have all sorts of things happening to the land. The land is changing, right? And so these places that they have created this sort of like um, obsessive audience for, they certainly, uh, they've, they've created a genre and, and people are pushing back against that. Um, so the new topographics was a 1975 show and that had, um, uh, no relation, but Robert Adams. Um, so, and you know, you've got Lewis Ball. So you've got a bunch of other photographers who were not afraid of kind of poking fun a little bit at that genre, and they weren't afraid of including things like this sprawl, this sort of like park the parking lot. You know, what it looks like when you have like thousand houses going up in the in Colorado or something, whatever that that may be. So, um, there's and there's been a lot of con- and so there's this is starting to become, uh, I would say, like this really fascinating um, evolution of, of this particular genre, because you got uh, a lot of like feminist pushback in the late seventies, mid eighties, which is a time that I'm focusing on for my thesis quite a bit. 
Um, and now they're saying there's even maybe some like new, new typographers that have <laughs> emerged in, in the 21st century, of which I consider myself to be one, where I'm, you know, slowly integrating and shifting away from making landscape photographs to instead taking the landscape genre as, um, as like, a, you know, something that I'm able to um, sort of reveal the flaws in a little bit. It's always been interesting to me in photography, how much we are in conversation with ourselves and with the people that came before us. And I think that's definitely obvious right now. And like you're saying, we're thinking about suddenly like photography is not removed from gender and, and arguably it never was, but the way that we talk about it cannot be right. And, and so it active conversations about gender or about um, ethnicity or about um, land ownership or about et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, have to be part of an art practice. Um, and, you know, not just because it's kind of in vogue, but to make work in good faith. So in some ways, you know, we're, we're entering this period where it's like, it's prime to um, start having these sorts of conversations and where there's an opening to like push back that like maybe Ansel Adams was not the genius that we celebrate him as, right. That maybe, he was he and his entire practice was deeply problematic. You know, I'm not a fan of Ansel Adams. We I don't know him, but I I guess the podcast has decided <laughs> we're canceling him. So you know you're canceled. Him. You know him. You know his work. <laughs> Everybody knows his work. Okay, okay, if you say so. So one thing that photography is um, takes as as its um, subject often is representation. So. Um, you know, the things that show up in images and uh, become these sort of enduring icons um, for the future generations and, and sort of the evidence and the history of, of what um, what we're leaving for the for the next is held in photographs oftentimes. And what so what I talk to what I've talked to my students that I've had about is, you know, really um, understanding the responsibility, the, what it means to put a frame around something. Because ultimately, when you put a frame around something, it means that everything that falls outside of that frame is something you've decided doesn't belong in the frame, right? So uh, meaning that you, you have already started your editing process, you have already begun to express some sort of um, some choice around what you're going to be showing your audience and your viewers. So um, those things, those decisions aren't arbitrary. They're informed by whatever it is that, um, you know, you, uh, you've, you've put your camera in front of. So I, you know, and, and so for that reason, who has a camera becomes another important question, right? And, and so when you look at the photographs that we think of as being a part of the historical canon right now, um, especially in the genre of landscape, they often represent, um, you know, uh, this, this very male legacy. And um, especially in the 19th century, you know, women weren't going out and they were not leading necessarily expeditions. I mean, certainly, you know, there's a historian, um, Virginia Scharf, who I love, uh, who writes a lot about, you know, like, women that sort of like were a part of some of these movements that moved across the country and indigenous women that really kind of like helped guide a lot of these male led expeditions where photographers were um, making this propaganda. But 
But all of that is to say that the photographic uh, collections that we have to look at and reflect back on the land of that time are filtered through um, the decisions, uh, you know, frames that were put around things that, that, that were being held by men. So, so I, of course, became curious, you know, thinking, okay, I'm out in the landscape. I'm a woman. I'm, you know, creating my own sort of of modern day expedition. And so um, what would it have looked like, you know, were there women that were making landscape photographs at that time? And how, why have I not heard of them? And, and maybe they are out there. And so I, of course, did find some and, and an artist named Linda Connor, who is a photographer who um, taught at SFAI, and I'm sure is still involved in some whatever next iteration is there. But she, you know, she I read an interview with her where she said that, you know, some of the earliest um, landscape photographs that she was able to find um, that women that were made by women uh, originated on the estates in in England and Ireland and, and places where photography was very um, sort of popularized at the time. So um, Lady Clementina Hayward and specifically she cites. And so I looked a lot of those photographs and of course she's known for making portraits of her young daughters on her estate, but um, the landscape itself uh, features in those. And so I started thinking about the backyard and these sort of domestic sites as maybe being um, excluded from the landscape genre at that time because they weren't new and exotic and they weren't suited for propaganda, but certainly they were images that were being made and they were featuring the landscape. And, and how might that conversation around land use and what we value in the way we think about land have changed if we had maybe included some of these photographs that were taken closer to home? So um, that those have been some of the driving questions in my work. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, Mason, but um, I'm not really sure what my question was. It was a little <laughs> bit rambly. But I like I think about how you and I both have this approach of like trying to figure out how to talk to new students. Many of our students teaching at a state school don't have interest in photography in the same way that we do, right? They're taking the classes because I have to take the classes. And so there is this struggle to get them involved on a personal level so that they will engage. And one of the most surefire ways is by showing them that there are people who look like them and um, act like them and and who they can directly identify with who also photographed at every step of the way. And one of the powerful things about photography is that, um, you know, at any era there were women making photographs and there were people anywhere where cameras were accessible making photographs. It's just a matter of finding them outside of the white male, French, English, American practitioners, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, the more we have people who are interested in complicating these stories and um, sort of allowing some of these uh, lesser kind of less familiar artworks to be integrated into the way that we teach photography. Um, We will certainly, uh, you know, start to pave the way for, for artists uh, to see themselves in, in, you know, stepping into the next generation of what it means to be a photographer and, um, and not feel like they have to maybe constantly, you know, break the chains of photography, but then maybe some of that work has already been done and that maybe they're, um, starting to join into a chorus of, um, resistance that is, has already been started. And I think that recognition is, recognition is important, um, which is part of the reason why uh, my work, you know, since I started thinking about the backyard space as being this um, kind of 
perfect stage for um, politicizing um, maybe like this female domestication of the landscape and, and, and then just generally thinking about um, uh, who has access to the outdoors and what looks, you know, who these people are that, um, you know, have access and, and not just to be outdoors, but also can own land and all of these things. And this is um, especially important to today's conversations around, uh, you know, people of color and what it means to be someone that uh, maybe has not been shown that this, that these things can happen or what they can look like. And photography is, is, is a tool that I think is well-suited for that. So um and it, this goes back to um, kind of, the, you know, as, as important as the, the political side of my work is, um, I'm also interested in the work taking on a little bit new life where it's not so serious that it becomes inaccessible or stodgy or or maybe even boring. I mean, landscape is already fairly boring. I mean, it's more interesting to be in a landscape than it is to look at a photograph of a landscape. So it's already a big ask <laughs> to ask people to read maybe a paper or a thesis about the history of landscape photography. So lightening things up and allowing a little bit of humor and um, I, I just think that um, questioning the things that you love is, is a great place to start with any investigation. And so when I started moving away from sort of the mid-grad school work and then moving into the real body of, of for thesis, you know, that work became work where I just played and played and played and um, going back to this idea of like, should we cancel Ansel Adams? Um, <laughs> My resounding answer to that after having made uh, photographs where I'm literally using shadows to sort of um, uh, manipulate my Ansel, the image on my Ansel Adams calendar, um, my answer to that is yes, I think Ansel Adams uh, <laughs> should be canceled. And I think he kind of already has been, but um, he joins, he joins an, a really important group of people. I mean, I recently read an article that John Muir is being you know, sort of revealed to be um, someone who the Sierra Club is stepping away from, you know, in his reputation. So, um, so questioning these, these icons, these legends, um, and thinking about, uh, you know, now that Ansel Adams, he lived a very long life. And certainly, I think a lot of people actively pushed back against his aestheticization while he was alive. And it doesn't maybe feel as pressing to do that now that he's not alive anymore. But I think because his estate controls the spread of his work, uh, and they spread it with such vigor that most people who don't even know his name recognize his images um, in the form of these kind of like souvenirs and, and, um, mass produced, uh, photographic, you know, property. Like we, we all know who he is, even if we can't, we don't know his name. And, and increasingly most of my students didn't know who Ansel Adams was, but, um, but that said, he, uh, I think, I think it's, he's fair. His work is fair game to question because, um, because it's time, I think it's time for some, for some new work that is going to change our conversation around the landscape in a way that, that couldn't be done without him, but it certainly needs to be done. Well, Sean, good news. Uh, my mission's complete. We've canceled Ansel Adams and that has been my entire life project. So I'm going to hand the podcast off to you and we, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to walk off into the sunset. My career is over. This is all I've ever wanted. <laughs> 
Well, I do have to say it's kind of delightful that you're able to cancel him or like you're (laughs) able as like even a community to kind of let's reassess this. We have no power. We should we should state that that we don't have. Yeah, any but power you're still it. talking like in a, in a, even in a broader sense, like the 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 photography community is still taking a look and saying, "Hmm, let's like evaluate this." And I mean, who I th- would be who would be a person that would be equivalent in the music in in kind of like in the music industry for you? Um, that's that's the problem. They're all they've all been dead for at least fifty years, right? <laughs> Or 50 to 100 years. So there's like this sense of removedness. And for me, the most like, if you want to say, quote unquote, problematic person that comes to mind is Wagner. Right? Because <laughs> for so many reasons. And just like, <laughs> but it's still played so much. You hear so many people talk about he's the greatest composer of all time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, are we not gonna re-examine this at all? No? Okay, nope, we will just keep playing Tristan und die Solde again. All right. I don't know. I mean, I feel I feel so basic even making work that like feels like it needs to push back at Ansel Adams. But I, and, and, you know, I'm in good company though. There are many, many <laughs> contemporary photographers who have done the same thing. In fact, I just listened to, you know, a whole talk about, you know, um, different artists who were sort of responding um, to Ansel Adams because I think he was added to the collection of the uh, uh, Museum of Boston and, and Ben, ben Don, who, who is a uh, faculty um, now in, in photography at San Jose State. He was interviewed as well as Mark Klett, um, three photographic surveys. So there's all sorts of, you know, responses to that work that are important and interesting and smart. Um, and mine is maybe just a little bit more, maybe like tongue in cheek, sarcastic, or maybe even just straight up cheeky (laughs) as I've, as I've been told. So, so, you know, that kind of like playful prodding is, is a useful tool, um, in terms of like kind of undermining some of these things. And it's not just Ansel, you know, I'm, so that's just one of the bodies of work that I'm including in thesis, but I, you know, I'm also just thinking of, um, you know, this idea of the picturesque view as something that is also fair game for undermining in every possible way. Um, so I've been exploring that and different kind of working with different materials. You can see, I have like all these fabrics where I've been, um, printing, you know, photographic textures of rocks, rock formations. And so I'm going to make a big fabric rock that's going to sit as a big boulder in the gallery and people can sit on it. It will be a beanbag chair in fact. So, um, if anyone visits the gallery, (laughs) if anyone ever sees this work, (laughs) we'll all be in a hazmat suit on this beanbag chair, but it'll be good. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't wait yeah. for that photograph. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's 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 so our consumption of the landscape is really the thing that kind of drives me and kind of keeps me up at night is like how how do I how do I uh justify you know spending a lot of time in the outdoors and making photographs of and about the you know the landscape and 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 study the work of other people um who are, you know, thinking a little bit more about, um, you know, climate change and all these other things that are really pressing issues around the landscape. And, and not that those are not of concern to me, 
Uh, but I do think that somehow what might help too is really holding up a mirror to the everyday consumer and saying, hey, landscape isn't just something that, you know, that you maybe don't have any type of uh, relationship with, even if you're not an artist, you look through your phone, how many pictures of, of a nice, pretty scene or a tree or whatever it may be around you that you've, that you've looked at, or is your background a landscape that you didn't, a photograph that you didn't make of the landscape or whatever that may be. So the consumption of these images leads to this entitlement of, of these spaces being there forever. And so one of the pieces in my thesis show is called super bloom. And that is, um, you know, kind of in response to the super blooms that were happening in, in California, specifically, you know, they're kind of a one scientists estimate, you know, once every 10 years or so, especially based on the cycle of drought that we, that we go through here in California. So I became fascinated with, with these singular natural events, these phenomena that, that bring out these, um, kind of Instagram, uh, those influencers. Yeah. Who are flocking to these towns. And, and so all in the name of capturing that, that image that you're going to post on your account and, and, you know, however much engagement you can gain from that is the ultimate goal. But what ends up happening as a byproduct of of that behavior is that these small towns are being overrun. So you have Lake Elsinore, you know, you have Walker Canyon, these little, these poppy fields. I shouldn't even, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry to the towns that I just said the names <laughs> of these towns. Because, um, but these, you know, the, the titles of them are things like, you know, Super Bloom Apocalypse, you know, uh, destroys small town in California or whatever that may be. And so I decided that I was going to um, really take that as a subject. And so I printed these, I, you know, I, I, again, you know, kind of not unlike other photographers, um, I used, I referenced my own archive, you know, I'd gone to, um, I'd been on a hike and I had some photographs that I had, I had made out during a super bloom event that weren't quite as prolific as those poppy fields, but were certainly, you know, like communicated the point, if you know what I mean. So I, so I ended up with these large, um, I created these large banner prints um, that measure like four feet by five feet each. And I created this sort of hanging panorama of this image at Sobranes and Big Sur. And, um, you know, really wanting to disrupt the photographic image, I I thought about, you know, how is a way to kind of visually represent this destruction that people that maybe, you know, what feels like an innocent photograph taken with, you know, your smartphone, like what what are the impacts beyond that? kind of behavior that, that we're all, um, sort of, uh, led to believe is acceptable because landscapes are everywhere. And of course, of course we should be able to consume them however we feel we, we want to. Um, and so, and so I, I hand cut every single flower out of those prints. And so now I've got, you know, a huge panorama, a huge Vista, you know, panorama without any (laughs) of a super bloom, without any flowers, (laughs) Um, and so that was a lot of fun for me. I mean, no, it was hard work and, and I think I have carpal tunnel now, but I, I, (laughs) I absolutely kind of enjoyed, um, that, that removal process because it was such a commitment. It was so much labor, um, to go in there, you know, and, and, and about, it took about 30 or 40 hours per print for me to hand remove all of these, these flowers and I packaged them. And so, um, those are going to be a part of the piece in, in, in the gallery. So it should be mentioned how large these prints actually are too. 
as somebody who's seen them in person, they're, they're what, how big are they? Yeah, they're, they're 44 inches by about 55 inches each. And there are four of them that will hang in a sort of, you know, asynchronous panorama. So uh, making fun of the panorama as well, I, I became kind of intrigued by this idea of, well, okay, so how do I kind of adapt these, these settings that you can use on your smartphone, you know, if you kind of cycle through, if you open up your camera app and you cycle through, you'll see that you can use like the panorama option. You can use the, the time, Ooh, time-lapse. That's a great yeah. one. Let's try that <laughs> sometime. That'd be fun. Um, so, and so thinking about the ways that I can kind of find an intersection between these, these visual kind of tropes that, that people take for granted potentially that may not know about the historical, um, kind of place that they have, especially in, in photography. And so, yeah, I, I did also create a time-lapse, an atypical kind of time-lapse for, for my show as well. That was not done digitally, but, um, made, uh, using slide film at some Vista points in California, which, um, will be another, uh, feature of my thesis show. It's interesting to hear you point that out. I watched part of the, um, well, on the day that we're recording this, they had the keynote for the new iPhones and they have all of this information in there about how much better the cameras are and, you know, the new seven element lenses and, and all this, but they're using all of the, they're using all of the terms that us photographers know as sort of technical, they're parts of our practice. There are tools um, and they all have, like you're saying, they have, you know, real historical value and, and context. And, uh, and so it's been interesting for me, I, I imagine for you too, over the last, I don't know, 10 years watching, um, these things sort of be co-opted by, by smartphones and, and, and that sort of technology and, and take on similar and new meanings. And then, then you have to teach them and you, there's this level of having to break people of those understandings and, and sort of a, a reprogramming. I mean, interesting I, I mean, there are, you know, just like any, anything that you can learn to do as a technique, um, whether it's an, an, a technique in the arts or, you know, a technique in the kitchen or, or, or any number of, of skills that you can gain. Um, I, I refer back to a quote that I heard from uh, Lewis Baltz, which is one of my favorite quotes, which is, you know, anyone can make a photograph, but the, the work of the artist is to make meaning out of those photographs. And, and for me, that, becomes uh this I, I start to think of my work as being sort of like a, a callback to um that process that that artists and, and photographers you know specifically you know have have gone through throughout history and really kind of bringing it full circle into conversation with things that relatively speaking happened not so long ago because you know the the carousel slideshow for example that that I've taken as my device for recreating a time lapse which um <clears throat> is sort of the perfect uh contraption for that if you know because you end up with this repeating cycle of images that go through and and maybe they're not moving as quickly as your iPhone or your smartphone would capture them um certainly and and they're not quite as old as like a lantern slide so it's not quite a video it's not quite a still photograph, but it's this movement through time. Um, it's this development. It's this, um, it's this, 
this real delineation of time um, as marked by a single image as it kind of changes. And so as, as the landscape kind of changes, you know, the camera's not moving at all. I've really like positioned the tripod in this one spot. And, um, you know, by using these, these slides on a carousel, I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, the passage of time, but I'm also talking about, um, you know, the usage historically of this particular tool um, by, by a populace that didn't used to just use, you know, a smartphone. They used to go out with their 35 millimeter cameras and go on a holiday with their families and go on vacation. And the ways that they would share those images um, rather than social media would be in their living room, uh, you know, as, as a projection. So um, really kind of like dipping back into the ways that just because the technology has changed, it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, photography was more artful just because it was made using these slides, you know, it doesn't automatically make it art. It's not, I'm not doing it for the kitsch factor, although I love kitsch, like really desperately (laughs) love kitsch. Uh, but, but I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm not, I'm not putting a slideshow in, in the gallery because I think it's going to be cool. I mean, it certainly, um, is, uh, engaged with, with, uh, the ways that we kind of devour imagery and the ways that that has changed over time. And also kind of, um, reminding people that just because they're experiencing it in a really convenient handheld way does not mean that it doesn't have some sort of precedent as a form. And the slide carousel is not that old either. Right. Like. No, it was, I looked it up for this interview because I, I kind of <laughs> felt like I should know. Uh, but it, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the slide carousel was invented in 1961, but the, the slide projector, um, not in carousel form, was in, invented in the 30s. And so in the 50s in particular, I think it became like very democratized and popular as a household um, experience. But uh you know, I also think that the, that um, the pairing of, you know, the ways that people, especially um, in that kind of Cold War era, were experiencing their uh, vernacular family holiday photographs and kind of consuming the landscape in their own way and the ways that they were capturing those things and then sharing them, that um, uh, overlaps really kind of beautifully with uh, the, the California Vista Point and the infrastructural implements that you can find at these different sites, um, which is its own history that I've been exploring. And, um, you know, be, California being this real kind of like stronghold of kind of the, the uh, Western landscape and all of that it has to offer in terms of its um, <clears throat> kind of, uh, you know, beauty that we've referred to and the aestheticization of this beauty. Um, the Vista points I, I think of as being sort of part of or a result kind of born out of that um, in this kind of cons- consumable way, you know, for people to stop and enjoy. And um, so I've been visiting all of these sites, but it's been fascinating because as you think of a Vista point as somewhere that people kind of casually stop in passing to see, you know, um, but, uh, my experience having visited about 17 or 18 of these different sites out of the 135 that Caltrans oversees and manages across the state of California, um, is that they are incredibly regionally specific and the usage of them is in fact, um, site specific to the community that they serve, um, more so than just the kind of tourist who is passing through. Um, so, 
So that kind of turns that whole assumption on its head once you once you actually go and experience that. So the time lapses of one of those Vista points. Um, in fact, it's at the Richmond San Rafael Bridge, which is um, about a half mile away from the um, from San Quentin Prison. So uh, it's a really interesting site in and of itself. You're right there, Sean. <laughs> fantastic. It's it's fantastic. You just have such a meaningful understanding of your context through everything. And I think it's really interesting. Your journey West kind of mirrors, but in a very right for very different reasons and purposes, like the, your study of photography as it moves West in American history. And I find that really beautiful and fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, it's, it's important. I think it's, it's, it's great. It's a great practice to take the thing that you love, um, and be critical of it and kind of like see, you know, when you put pressure on it a little bit, like kind of what, what it can kind of reveal itself to be. And, and, and hopefully like my great hope is that, you know, as someone who is interested in the landscape being something, that people don't take for granted necessarily, but think of as something that they have some sort of responsibility for and not just the people that have been kind of privileged enough to have access or um, the ability to represent these spaces. Like I, I'm really excited to see how, um, you know, kind of the contemporary artists of this generation are going to start to um pull apart this thing that we all think has already been taken apart. Like really it's, it's still ripe for investigation. Right. And, and I think that our, you know, the, the millennial view of the landscape is very different from our parents and generation Z and whatever comes after will be even more different than, than ours simply because we can't own land. Right. And, and we all, so many of us live in, in rented uh, places. And so as to some extent you would expect like our relationship to these sorts of things to change naturally um as as time goes on hopefully for the better but um even still like it shows how important making this work is because as our relationships change we enter into a space that we don't really have the tools or language to talk about these things with because all of the work that we can reference exists from a, a different set of language and different set of expectations. So to some extent there is the space that sort of that work like this fills for thinking about how we talk about the land and landscape and photography moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think you touched on something really important, uh, which is something that I, uh, was recently reading about, which is um, this question of intention behind maybe why people revisit certain sites over and over again, you know, like, uh, you know, interestingly enough, like, I guess in his old age, not to, you know, <laughs> belabor the Ansel Adams point, but <laughs> he, um, <laughs> it always comes back to Ansel. <laughs> this guy. Um yeah, he uh, was really, really resistant to making photographs of places where he had photographed before. Um, and he was very resistant to showing any type of change. He didn't want people to think that the landscape had a life of its own or had evolved or changed and in, in that there was any real kind of human impact on the land. Like it was important to him to preserve this idea that 
there was some sort of like, um, kind of like spiritual perfection to the landscape that could be communicated through an image. And, you know, meanwhile, you have, uh, you know, these other artists who, you know, are not only are they photographing the land showing exact with the intention, exactly kind of, of documenting those changes, um, as a way for, um, really allowing people to have some sort of like visual, uh, interface with these changes, because I think photographs are so powerful in that way, like photographic, um, you know, we can, we can argue the merits of photographic truth if we want to, but the reality is most people, you know, see a photograph and, and that tells them something about the world that maybe, you know, if they hadn't actually seen it themselves, that they come to understand as being something that has either happened or, or, um, you know, as, as some sort of evidence of something, maybe they don't know exactly what it is, but, but it becomes integrated into their own kind of portfolio of images that they refer to when that subject comes up. Um, and so that becomes visual, uh, you know, visual language is so important. Visual literacy is so important so that when people look at a landscape painting or photograph or whatever that is, instead of thinking, huh, that's pretty, I've never been there before rather than that being, and and maybe that's fine too, occasionally, of course, but, but that's not, um, we can, we can start to, um, make work with these images that maybe aren't so comfortable to look at. When I put together my, my panorama of those landscapes taken in Big Sur, where I hand, you know, kind of cut all of the flowers out, uh, you know, even though I have been working with these images since I thought my show was originally going to happen in March, and I thought, wow, perfect, like spring super bloom, no flowers. This is going to be such poetic justice for all those super bloom, you know, <laughs> photographer, like <laughs> photographers out there. Uh, rather than that timing working out, like instead what's happening is that um, I'm having, especially now in this moment of the pandemic and having spent a lot more time with the pieces that I thought I was going to be sort of crushing through in this, like with this academic urgency, um, you know, now that I've really spent, uh, time with these pieces when I, it's been very limited because we just recently were able to access our studios on campus again. So I didn't have the space to spread them all out side by side. And I, you know, brought them into the studio and, you know, just to kind of see, you know, cause I, you know, a lot of this, I, I'm not sure how it will add up visually in the gallery once I install it, but, um, you know, having the experience of seeing them side by side, I, uh, I got emotional. I, 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 you know, I really felt this, uh, sense of loss that was at a scale that I wasn't anticipating by seeing four giant photographic prints, um, kind of missing the, um, that sort of like natural kind of inflection point that, that I think most people would be hungry for looking at a landscape like that. And so, um, there was a, there was a, there was a sorrow that I wasn't quite expecting. And I think, you know, as much as I, I think that that the humor that is in the work is important. I think that, um, I, I think that kind of finding ways to engage different types of sort of emotional responses to the work is, is what I'm experimenting with right now, because I think often, like I said, like landscape is taken as neutral. I, 
I had some plans to sort of ask you the really vague questions about like what has, you know, how has grad school changed your um, art style and, and how has it affected your practice? And I think that we've touched on, on all of those things. Um, but I, I guess now I'm more curious about like where you think, um, you know, all of this work goes moving forward as you move out of academia and, and as all of us who have built this life plan of teaching, of getting a master's in teaching, and, and, and we come to the end of it, and that is suddenly very, you know, very truly kind of in question just practically. Um, do you have any sort of, you know, really concrete ideas about like, about where your practice goes and, and where your thinking goes when you leave academia temporarily or forever, if that ends up being the case? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I, I keep thinking about an hourglass because in undergrad, you know, uh, I went to the, you know, the, the liberal arts school always used the hourglass as their model for what their, your kind of four-year plan should look like. And, you know, this idea that you kind of start with this really broad base of study, we are taking all kinds of classes that don't have any real, they're not, you're not building, you know, very unlike, you know, the state school experience that you had, Mason. Right. We're all about triangles at state schools. There's no, (laughs) there's no inversion. It's just, you start wide, you go up to a point and then they um, eventually kick you out and you're done. Yep. They hand you a diploma and they slam the door. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the hourglass was kind of fun because it meant that, you know, you know, I spent the first year kind of studying whatever I want. It was like a buffet. <laughs> um, and then and then the middle years, I kind of like really kind of like honed in. And then the last year I I did. I again kind of branched out and took a bunch of things. And so if I take a wider stance on that, you know, kind of taking a step back from like my whole uh, academic life, which has been spread out over so many years and with big breaks. But if, if I think about my life as maybe, um, as grad school as being the center, you know, that really kind of like compressed focused time, um, then I think the next, uh, place that I'd like to go is to kind of widen things out a little bit to do, um, maybe a little bit of, uh, dare I say, unlearning of some of the conventions that I was held to during such a formal time, um, kind of answering to a committee of, of people who I really, um, appreciated getting that feedback and having that structure because I, I do respond very well to structure. And in that way, I'm terrified of being without it in the next chapter. But I, I really do feel like at least being told that broadening out isn't a weak thing to do, or it's not something that's going to in any way um, undermine the focused work um, is going to allow me to, first of all, have like a better life work balance, which for an artist is um, incredibly hard to do because uh, for artists, you you have two careers at all times. There's not one, it's two. You know, you're making your own work and then you're also trying to figure out something potentially very disparate to make money. So how do you have your life kind of in that mix? And so for me, um, I would love love, love to teach. And I would also love to take advantage of some of the programs that I've read about, um, 
where people that teach during the year can are given grants, you know, doing some grant writing for some opportunities in the summer. Um, this is all, of course, contingent upon the idea that COVID, you know, kind of loosens its grasp <laughs> on travel and, and, and all of these things. But um, yeah, I, I really do think that, um, that teaching is something that I would love to do. And I, and I hesitate to say that, but um, because I know that it's sort of a cliche for artists to become teachers, but regardless, I, I do, I do, um, I do love it. I do love the idea of sharing the things that I care about with, with other people. I think we just lost Sean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, he's yeah. like Sean out. <laughs> well, and then I guess this is a good place to end it. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. This has been a delight and an honor. It's always good to talk to you about this. And um, I'm sure you will be you will be back on as we dig further into different issues. I would love to talk to you again. And I'm sure Sean would too. Yes, yes. Please check back in and see how I'm doing. Make sure I'm still... <laughs> still alive. Still alive over here. <laughs> Where can people find you? My online presence um, is something that takes a few forms. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to update them. I have a website. It is my full name, uh, elenarios.com. Uh, my first name is spelled with all A's. So A-L-A-N-A-R-I-O-S at, uh, dot com. So you can find some of my work there. Um, you can also find me on Instagram um, and it's elena.rios.photo. I say that with a question mark because I, I don't, I don't know where the dots go, but it <laughs> shouldn't be too hard to find me. Thank you so much for coming on. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you both for having me. And we will have you back on soon, I'm sure. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?